Welcome back to the Joker Men podcast. I'm Evan. I'm Ian. This is our first uh, one in a while that's just a free episode in a, in a little bit. That's the first one since a week ago. <laughs> I don't know why it feels a little long. It's because well, we... our recording schedule is, is different now because we need to have three ready to go instead of two. So we have longer amounts of time in between episodes. But right. like in this case, we've got, we're recording two tonight and then we're going to be back at it for another one, paid one, on Sunday. Uh, we might be taking another trip back to Wilburyville for those of you who are uh, interested in old uh, the adventures of old. Well, I guess his name is Boo on on the second one. The Wilbury the Wilbury family, yeah, yes. Doesn't matter what their first names are; that last right. name never changes. Right. It, that's 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 the thing that unites them all is the Wilbury heritage, the Wilbury family crest, and the Wilbury. Uh, history of being a family that exists and is real. Um, but today we're, we're doing a main line, a live album um, in the official Bob Dylan chronology. This comes uh, right after World Gone Wrong. And well, not right after. Uh, there's a little bit of a gap. World Gone Wrong was was 93. Yep. And then you get 94 rolls by. A great year for live Bob, I have to say. Um, and we will discuss Woodstock 94 at some point soon. Yes. <clears throat> but uh, today we're talking about 95's MTV Unplugged album. It's a live album where Bob Dylan was on MTV, music television. Yep. The one and only. Something that he's sort of uh, predicted in his songs, you know. In his in his song TV talking song, TV talking blues or whatever the hell, yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. I have to say, speaking for just myself, but I think for you too, we have a little bit of the TV talking blues uh, around this album. Yes, well, um, you know, I don't know if we want to uh, to dive right into that right off the bat, but let's just say here, um, and maybe we do want to dive right into it off the bat, but uh, you know, we can we can say that certain certain songs uh, were cut from the finished product of this record from the television broadcast as well as the you know kind of put together album, though, which are different. Also, what what appeared on TV is different from what appeared on the record. Um, but even still what's on the record, which is more is lacking several, uh, you know, several cuts that took place at these shows, but didn't end up making it. And so it has been left to, uh, to the bootleggers, uh, those you know, heroes uh, of the Bob the, Dylan universe, truly the unsung, uh, heroes of the Bob Dylan. Yeah. Just kind of world, uh, much better than all of the guys who, you know, complain about him making records like planet waves um well, well, we well let's we just stay in, in plain terms they cut out much of the best stuff that was done during these sessions these live recorded sessions uh dylan basically played well it was like two different concerts am i getting two nights correct? yeah yeah back-to-back um, nights in november seven not 74 94 we both li- hey that's do you know what happened to know what day? Because I was born in November ninety-four. 17th and 18th, 1994. Okay. I was born I wasn't born yet. I was, was born in, just, on November 30th. So this was just two two scant weeks before you emerged. Yeah. 
So anyway, I thought we were going to have a cool moment on the podcast, but no, no. but uh, there's uh, some great stuff that we both listen to on the, the bootlegs of the whole shows, you know, where you can hear him perform a lot of stuff we'll get into later. And then there's also, then there's the officially released album, which while not bad exactly, it pales in comparison to what it could have been in right. a dramatic fashion, I think. Right. Well, I mean, I think as as we have seen many times throughout Bob's career, you know, there is some degree of self-sabotage going on in a lot of the stuff. And and for this record, it's, it's unclear who actually performed the sabotage, whether it was self-sabotage or whether it was, uh, you know, the MTV Fat Cats who dictated the songs that would be broadcast on television and then on, on the record itself. Or, you know, maybe it was a combination of both of them. Um, yeah. In any case, whoever was calling the shots called them poorly. Poorly, um, yeah. Poorly, yeah. Because uh, we're missing out on a couple really stone-cold kind of classics. I'm going to say, like, two to three really great, like, potential all-time live versions not like maybe all time, but like in the conversation for like maybe top five of some right. of my favorite like arrangements and performances of right. certain songs that are just not here. Anyway, I guess we should just j- jump ahead and into it because uh, I think m- more so maybe on the second episode of this, uh, we will actually discuss the bootlegs more in depth and why they're so good and this episode your lucky <laughs> listener you you out there in uh, podcast land can listen to us talk about a, the actual thing what exists yes what has been officially uh, uh put out and blessed by bob dylan and the music television corporation uh before we do dive into the songs on the record though i, I do think it's just kind of uh important to you know take a couple minutes and just sort of check in with bob uh, and see, you know, kind of remind ourselves of of where he's at at this particular moment in time, right? Because this is um, this is his first live record in in over a decade at this point. Remember, we went through kind of a uh, a series of live records back to back to back, or or seemingly back to back to back for a little while there, mm-hmm. um, from '74, where we had uh, Before the Flood. Uh, 76, we have uh, Hard Rain. 79, we have Budokan. 84, we have Real Live. That's four live records in the span of 10 years. And then uh, this comes out in 95, so it's been 11 years since Real Live, uh, the last time we had a a live record from Bob. And I think the reason that we had that span of time between, you know, such a long span of time between live records there is because Bob has, has ceased being a commercial prospect in that span of time. Um, you know, as has been well chronicled on uh, on Jokerman, the uh, the mid to late '80s um, uh, might have been rewarding for uh, for us and all of the uh, the heads and freaks out there. Mm-hmm. But in terms of uh, commercial aspects and critical aspects, not not Bob's hottest period of time, and so that's why he kind of steps back from live records. Or that's presumably why the record company doesn't want to put out live records for him. But now here we are, '94. He's just kind of uh, reset, you know, kind of gone through a, a career reset with the folk records that we've talked about recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, the bootleg series has come out and he's kind of stepping into 
um, kind of stepping into his into his like latter day role as like a a legacy artist at this point, I guess would be my 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 take on things. Because I mean, it, it it is I don't know about you, but to me, it it seems or it seemed strange that Bob would willingly kind of do an MTV, MTV unplugged set. Yeah, it uh, seems you know. strange that he would agree to do it. Yeah, just because of the the vibe and the optics of that, it seems uncharacteristic of Bob Dylan. Exactly. Yeah. And, and especially, you know, it, one, one thing that was kind of a condition of him doing these, these MTV unplugged shows, regardless of whether we're talking about the record that came out or the, the songs that got bootlegged from the performances, uh, he, the, the set list was dictated to him or, or not explicitly dictated, but he was, he was commanded to lean heavily on the sixties kind of classics. And so that's what we get in in a lot of these songs are you know material from from the hey, the original heyday um so that again seems sort of you know a, a certain a certain type of bob or a certain period of bob would not subscribe to that whatsoever but i guess at this point he's a little more willing to you know start mining his his back pages but, so to speak but frankly he's in my opinion he's also able to do those old songs in a way that is kind of the best live renditions of them that he's done in probably I think up to this point right like the in terms of him reimagining old songs from the 60s right I think this is where that starts to really take off and become the the thrilling thing it continues to be Right. Yeah. And, and I guess so maybe that's maybe that is part of the reason why he is willing to, to do this kind of thing at this point is because he knows he's figured out how to how to tackle it now. Right. Exactly. He can give the audience what they want, you know, quote unquote, what they want or what they expect in that. Yeah, he's getting up there. He's playing Rolling Stone, but he's not it, it's not just the same version of Rolling Stone he's been playing for 30 years at this point. And it's also, I think, crucially, it's not a version of Rolling Stone that feels like it's tethered to a specific era of popular music like it's not like he's doing a trendy 70s disco inflected version of it um you know as charming and as funny as that can be uh these versions kind of speak to i guess the sort of end of history (laughs) feeling of the 90s you know absolutely uh, absolutely he i think that is actually a really interesting lens to sort of view this whole record and this whole i mean this whole performance really uh from if you're not familiar by the way with the concept of the end of history it's uh of course a, a sort of political socio-economic concept uh, by francis fukuyama that's sort of francis fukuyama yes uh, political philosopher that supposes that sort of um at a certain point everything feels like it's uh, reached the pin. There's sort of a mass delusion. One could say that like there, things are as good as they're ever going to get. And then, uh, we just start treading water and sort of wondering. Right. Yeah. It was a philosophy kind of on vogue in the Clinton era when it seemed like all the problems had been solved. You know, the USSR was finished. There was only one superpower in the world, America. And, you know, just, uh, you know, the, the way things were, were the way they were going to be forever. And so we were we were past any sort of evolutionary ferment, uh, you know, in in the world at large. And so you can kind of graph that onto Bob, circa nineteen ninety five. Obviously, right. past past we know any that didn't end up working out. Past any uh, political.
radical change and past any change in Bob Dylan's career. Uh, exactly. They're, those Obviously, things are one and the same. But uh, they literally are one and the same because, uh, you know, as we saw on that fateful day, September 11, 2001, the world changed forever when Bob Dylan released Love, Love and Theft. Love and Theft, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I feel like the end of history has is kind of, it's something that's been kind to Bob Dylan because for the longest time, I think he, what he's kind of been uh, most inspired by is sort of this collapsing of all eras and all times into his music, bringing like medieval themes and literary themes and contemporary references all together into one song often. And uh, so this feeling of just kind of like casually eclectic vibes of, of the early to mid 90s. I think is uh, something that really suits him. And it turns out, I think really is actually inspiring to Dylan. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that all makes a lot of sense. And I, and I think that the, you know, the end of history kind of uh, idea or concept there really does apply at, at this specific moment in his career, because, you know, we're still in 95, two years away from time out of mind. No one has any idea of what, you know, uh, what, what's coming on. Uh, coming down the pike, you know, uh, a couple years later. Uh, so at this point, it's been five years since his last original, you know, material, which was Red Sky. And uh, and he's released a couple, you know, relatively warmly received covers records. But that's like, he hasn't put out a, an original song in five years. And he hasn't put out a good original song or a good original record since Oh Mercy, you know, six years earlier. And so it kind of seems like at this particular moment in time, like, like, we were at the end of history and we were at the end of Bob Dylan also. Like he had, he had done everything he was going to do in terms of evolving as an artist and putting out, you know, kind of essential material. Right. Those, those last two records just kind of seem like a tabula rasa moment of just like bringing everything back to the root, the like absolute embryo of what Dylan is. Exactly. And then it's really uh, special to see, that that was not like the victory lap or like the rather the coda to his long and storied career, but actually like a rebirth moment. And Dylan is now the uh, star child for Dylan. He's Dylan. He went from being Dylan Dylan the gray to (laughs) Dylan the white. And he is now uh, the reborn. Yeah. Reborn and uh, not born again, but uh, born again, 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 again. It has been, a, I was thinking about this just a moment ago. I, I hadn't realized it, but you know, we're, we're we're recording in 2021, and this record came out in '95, right? So that's 26 years between this and uh, between now and this record. And so this record initially, when this came out, 26 years before that would have been what 1969, right? Would have been Nashville Skyline. So Dylan has had a whole Nashville skyline to MTV Unplugged career since MTV Unplugged came out. And obviously he hasn't put out as many records, uh, but, you know, the the scope and the scope of what he's put out since then and the variety have been have been just as impressive as anything he put out, I think, in, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s period. Totally. He's he's a lived you know the the careers and the lives of three men. But this is uh this is where you're starting to see 
Dylan limber back up. In in some sense, you could say that uh, the MTV unplugged uh, performance that Dylan gave is his um, before the flood for the nineties. It's him. <laughs> it's him nimbling himself back up because he knows he's about to get back out there. It's him training, and uh, yeah, yeah, I see that. Like before the flood was right before uh, uh, blood on the tracks, right? and so he's doing no, this no, right was, before. It, before the flood was right before. Uh, but on the track, planet waves, right? Or was it right after? Uh, oh yeah, I mean th- those were kind of happening contemporaneously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I see what you mean. Planet waves. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we we've chatted a lot about uh, the setup. I think you maybe get a vague idea, and now we can just uh, begin to talk about the music. How about that? How about it? Track one of Bob Dylan's MTV Movie Awards <laughs> uh, goes He's to been presented with the Moon Man for um, Best Kiss. Yeah, do they the Moon Man? Yeah, remember that's what they give at the MTV Awards the little moon, the little astronaut guy. Oh, okay. The, when you said Moon Man, I was thinking about the McDonald's, uh, the former McDonald's character mascot. Mac tonight, moon? the Moon Man. I don't know. I'm not sure that I'm familiar with the the Moon Man from McDonald's. You don't, you don't know the Moon Man. I know Ronald. I know the Grimace. I know. Oh, that guy. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I I do remember him. Yeah, he's cool. <laughs> the Grimace. <laughs> yeah, his name is Grimace. The, uh, or Grim, the Grimace or Grimace. If you're Italian, <laughs> Grimace. Yeah, that's how that's how they refer to him in uh, in in Tuscany, his his home. Yeah, they tell terrifying stories to the children around Il the Grimace. Il Grimace. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Jesus Christ. Okay, what's the first song? Sorry, I forgot. Uh, Tombstone Blues. Right. Mama's in the uh, kitchen. I'm in the kitchen. It's rather. Excuse me. I'm sorry. No. Um, I have to say, this version is very solid. But something about it does not galvanize me the way that it should. Interesting. I think it's great, but it's not like capital G great. Right. It lacks a little bit of a rough edge. I will say, though, that throughout all of this, um, I think this is the first time on Joker Men podcast that we are discussing something of the the Winston Watson era uh, Mm -hmm. as the drummer in in Bob Dylan's band. who played it in 94 to, I'm not sure exactly when in, in the early to mid nineties. Um, and, uh, is featured here, I think on his only actually officially featured release where he plays. I just know about him cause I, um, saw once like when I was like 12 or 14 or something like a very uh, low budget documentary on TV about him and how he uh, was just kind of an untrained drummer, relatively, like not like a session guy or anything. And he just happened to get picked up and uh, joined Bob Dylan's band for a whirlwind few couple years. And uh, for my uh, money, in my opinion, I think he's one of the best live drummers Dylan's ever had because he brings a lot of uh, fun and that sort of untrained quality he has um, doesn't, uh, come across as, as 
amateurish. It, it just means a lot of spontaneity and sort of, um, a weird, <laughs> it's kind of a eccentric fun, uh, rhythm section in, in all right. of this. Yeah. He's got a really nice kind of crack band, uh, I think, uh, behind him the entire way. Uh, you know, it's, it's an unplugged record, uh, but it isn't like, um, it isn't acoustic necessarily. You know, he's got, like you said, Winston Watson on, um, on the kit. Um, and then, uh, he's got uh, a couple guitarists and a bass player, a stand up bass and, uh, an organ player as well. Um, some of the folks I think that were in the band with him for this were semi interesting. Um, Brendan O'Brien, uh, who I, I didn't really know who he was, but he's on the organ for this whole record. It's good. Um, it's good organ. And a good organ. A really good organ. sounding band. The same band actually, that was, I, as far as I know, the same band on the supper club. Uh, show, yeah, I think, which I was, think similar, if not identical, Winston Watson, definitely yeah. in, in both of them. Um, but yeah, this Brendan O'Brien guy, uh, uh, is a semi-famous record producer. It seems like he's produced ACDC, Pearl Jam, the Stone Temple Pilots, Rage and Springsteen, among others. Sort of like pseudo grunge clout for the MTV performance in 95. Yep, yeah, exactly. Oh, he produced, uh, Paul Westerberg. Oh, really? Yeah. This wasn't the first MTV Unplugged uh, release, was it? No, like, no, 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 no. No, Unplugged had been around for five, six years at this point. Wow, okay. I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, which I think is why, you know, they they were able to get Bob it, at this It had point. been I, vetted. I, yes. Was this yeah. before or after Nirvana's Unplugged? Uh, it was after, right? Because Co- wasn't Cobain dead by 95? I think he did die before uh, this, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, RIT. Yeah, or Nirvana's uh, Unplugged with uh, members of the Meat Puppets, uh, the great, great Meat Puppets. The great Meat Puppets, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyways, yeah, Tombstone Blues, you know, uh, I, I think I agree with you. Good, not great. Uh, you know, it, it does a good job of kind of introducing the band and, and, you know, kind of showing what this is, what this is going to sound like. But I think part of what is so thrilling about about Tombstone Blues on the record is like just it's a fucking buzzsaw yeah. rock and roll song with the guitar um, and that and that fast clip of the lyrics. Although I do really like Dylan's uh, interpretation of of his songs in general and his phrasing and so on in in this performance. Yeah, um, I, and including right. this one, it's I just wish it had a little bit more of um, a like you said, that, that buzz saw energy, which we will get to it. Um, one of the songs that was cut, uh, it was, uh, absolutely sweet. Marie shows that that's something that was perfectly, uh, possible at this point for the yes. band to achieve. Yes. Uh, interestingly, one more note on Tombstone Blues. This was the first time that he had played it in, uh, over a decade, uh, live. Oh, that's um, cool. This performance, uh, Evan, would you care to hazard a guess when the previous time he had played no. Tombstone Blues? No, 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 no. Is it really? Is it? I'm just gonna turn on. I'm just gonna turn on the screen share here for you. There it is. 
Listeners at home, uh, you know, you might want to just Google <laughs> where Bob performed on July 8th, 1984, uh, which was the last time that Tombstone Blues had been performed live before this set. <laughs> I'm in slain with those Tombstone Blues. <laughs> uh, mama's in the castle. Mama's in uh, the castle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're gonna, I, we, uh, I, 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 we're gonna get there soon, <laughs> folks. Uh, I think, I think we've got a fun kind of series uh, lined up, uh, you know, that we'll we'll be embarking upon yeah. here in the next couple. We're gonna, weeks. we're gonna get on that that train, so <laughs> to speak. This the slain train is a coming. Yeah. Um. Anyways, uh, song two. Yeah, please. Uh, shooting star. Yeah, this is a cool oddball choice. (laughs) Yeah. And again, I don't, uh, well, not again, but in general, I don't really know what the actual order was, like in person, what what the set list was. Do you know? Uh, Well, we do have it uh, recorded here on oldbobdylan.com the same way that we have all his other live shows. That's that's great. Let's see. We've Because I I couldn't uh, tell. Did they they chop some of this up? Like... Yeah. Um, well, so, I mean, there were the two sets over the two nights, right? So they were slightly different. Um, I don't know where the second night set is, but this first night set, uh, Shooting Star was not even played. Okay. Um, so Tombstone Blues was the first track, but Shooting Star did not even make an appearance. Yeah, I, I only bring that up because I feel like it's a little bit like weird to have that be the second song in the, in the set. I just, I mean... Our main gripe with this is going to come down to not exactly the sequencing, but like the selection. Um, I could have stood to have this record be like a double album, honestly. I think it could have been. Right. And anyway, back to the song uh, at hand. I think it's a good version of of Shooting Star that I actually kind of like more maybe a little bit more than the one on the record uh, oh mercy yeah I, I i i see what you mean on that i don't know that i like it more than oh mercy but i don't like it less than oh mercy either it, i think it, it translates it's a nice really kind well. of yeah it's a warmer version of the song i think and it's and it's a more faithful interpretation of the song than a lot of the older songs are obviously because this is a more recent track for bob so he wasn't as interested in completely you know fucking it yeah. up and blowing it yeah. up um, in a cool way, but you know, it's, it's not too, it, it's a, it's a different kind of sound than obviously you get on Oh Mercy, but the arrangement and the melody and the, the vocal take is all pretty, you know, pretty down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he, this is uh, one of several, um, Oh Mercy cuts that he works into, um, that he works into the record here. Uh, it's interesting how we'd like, that's the, that's the record that he's, he's pulling, uh, more contemporary songs from. Besides all of the older shit, which, you know, he was, again, instructed to focus on, uh, you know, when he's peppering new songs in, the few that he does, I think, are mostly almost all from Oh Mercy. Um, So maybe a a peek into his own uh, opinion and interpretation of his uh, more recent material at the time, since that's what he was apparently willing to stack up next to all the classics. Yes. Um, Good version. Good song. Nice, uh, nice harmonica uh, there in the middle. It's just—it's great to hear Bob play the harmonica, you know. Yeah, 
And really, uh, it's great to hear Bob play all over this thing because he sounds so lucid and um, with it. He really right. seems like connected. That that rare thing in a Bob Live record, that elusive thing that you are always hoping is there, is Bob actually sounding like he is thinking Gives about what he's saying. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is amazing the the amount of buy-in that uh, that MTV was able to get from him in 1995 for something like this. You know, I it, I know it's premature, but um, talking about the cover, but uh, I think it is worth noting just as a a gesture. I think it's cool that Bob wore like a big polka dot shirt, a black and white polka dot shirt, which really does harken back to. This the middle sixties, uh, raging right. glory of, well, yeah. of him looking fucking awesome all the time. Badass, and, and I mean, what what really harkens back to that, which he also includes here, uh, are dark sunglasses. Sun, dark sunglasses, exactly. Fucking badass. Yeah, and a cool uh, blazer, kind of coat. Yeah, pretty sick. Um, just to give you a peek about Dylan's visual. Uh, at his visual presentation here, which uh, I think meshes perfectly well with with the uh, choice of, of material and the execution. Sure. And then we have the next song, All Along the Watchtower, which I confess, I mean, I've probably said this before, but I don't know. It's a song that I, I feel like it never really hits me the way that it should. Right. Like, it's a song that is so clearly, gr- like, good, so important in in terms of its influence, I, I think. Probably, like, a very, maybe covertly, like, extremely influential song. Um, I don't even know if it's covertly. I mean, that is, that is like, enormously, it, it, you know, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, it's, it's just a, it's an elusive song for me, I guess. I, I, I feel like I've yet to really, like... Maybe it is like more important to me than I realize, and that's why it feels a little bit like hard to love. Like right. it's a little like too big, or, or I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Sort of. I mean, I, I think from like from my money, uh, I think the best version of All Along the Watchtower is the first version. John Wesley uh, Harding. Just yeah. Like if I want to listen to this song, that's the version I want to listen I think to. Which th- is, I think that that uh, is something I feel too. Because it, in being a little bit smaller in execution there, it actually, like, paradoxically feels as big as it should be. Um, right. Whereas so often it's it's performed with this bravado that kind of, like, dwarfs the actual lyric, lyricism and imagery. Right. Yeah. It's kind of, I, I mean, I, I think uh, obviously, you know, the Hendrix version of this is, uh, you know, kind of the, the canonized version. Um, and it's, you know, it's great for what it is, but it's almost a shame that that, that happened because I feel like Bob has been trying to live up to that version of it ever since that right. became the version that everyone became familiar with. When in reality, this is just, it's literally like a two minute kind of like quiet, a vibey story imagery song mm-hmm. on John Wesley Harding, which is fantastic for what it is. Uh, but just, you know, it's uh, even this version is like it, on the unplugged uh, stuff. 
uh, has, it, 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 we don't have like the hardcore electric, you know, kind of instrumentation to it, but it is a very dramatic and heavy and kind of like self-consciously rocking interpretation of the track. Yeah. Yeah. I, like, I just wish you know, that I don't Bob would occasionally give this one a go as a more subdued type of song. Right. And let, let the imagery, which is so iconic speak for itself a little bit. Although that said, I think this is one of the better versions of it because of its like quote, 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 unpluggedness. They don't do any like hammy shredding on like a pedal, like a guitar laden with a million pedals. It, it stays relatively close to the earth. So it's a solid version, but yeah, I think you and I both agree that the the OG stands supreme. Right. Uh, well, the songs, they are a-changing, and uh, so are the times. They, they are. And uh, this one finds Bob singing that same old song, but in the 1990s. Uh, yes. Pretty good. I like yeah, it. I think... Yeah, me too. Uh, I think this is a, a really nice kind of like, uh, uh, like this is a great just kind of way to breathe some life into a song like this, which has been, he's sung, you know, several thousand times and like, you know, almost like you can't even imagine him singing it anymore because he's sung it so many times. Like there's nothing else to say by singing this song. Well, but the, there, there's nothing else to say. And yet it's, always true <laughs> like it's uh it's it's designed to be relevant no matter what right even though it depends like the 60s will always be like the most potent time for this song in in everyone's memory for probably probably a while unless somehow it becomes really famous like 40 years from now when we're when when it becomes the soundtrack to like the war over potable water (laughs) (laughs) but uh for now you know the the 60s is always kind of going to be the most galvanized period for the song however in the 90s uh you know a lot was changing still and um you know, gay marriage wasn't even like legal. Like there's still like some fights that need to be fought, you know? And, uh, and I guess now still, the, uh, I guess we still haven't totally conquered racism. We're, we're almost there, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it's always relevant. This song. It is always relevant. Uh, the, uh, and the, you know, the version, the, the interpretation here, really nice, very, very kind of pretty stately kind of swooning, almost like, a it, it doesn't have a waltz tempo to it, but it's like not too far off from it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, very mid, mid tempo. Yeah. Mid tempo. Very pretty. The crowd loves it. You know, as soon as people realize what song they're playing, they all hoot and holler for it. Uh, you know, people just want to hear him play the hits. And so he's certainly, he's certainly doing that for them in this case. Yeah. He knows that, uh, the, the dramatic tension is kind of like on his side and he's writing that doing this, uh, this song on MTV in 1995. He, right. He's, uh, fully aware that it, of how to, how to pr- approach it. 
so right. that it milks it for for all it's worth, and it works. Yeah. Uh, did he play this both nights? Yeah, he played this both nights. Yeah, so this was definitely one of the kind of uh, headline uh, key songs in the set list that they obviously wanted him to do for good reason. You know, everyone from the from the youngest babe to the uh, the oldest person, uh, yes. we all love the times they are changing. That's right. Uh, next next one down on the line uh, is one that I don't care for so much that much. Really? Uh, I'll tell you why. It's John Brown. Yes. And uh, I think it's good, and I think it's fine. I think it's good. I'll stress that again. But um, like uh, Scott Walker's song, uh, Hero of the War... Uh, it's just kind of a milk toast, like boilerplate anti-war song about a guy who goes to war and you know his family tells him to go to war and then he goes and he gets totally obliterated and turned into a husk and loses all his limbs and stuff. And then every you know the the message being war is bad. Yes, and uh, he does get owned. In my, <laughs> he gets owned. He gets pwned even. <laughs> and in in my opinion. When you've got what what you have as a closer on this record, you don't need another anti-war song on there, especially if it means that you'd picked to include this song over, say, the version of I Want You that he omitted. Mm. Um, the closer of this being With God on Our Side, which we'll get to, but uh, I feel like that song is like such a, just a, it's in, in another weight class in terms of anti-war songs. So like right. you don't need to have this one on there. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's not, it wouldn't be considered essential. Um, it is fun to see this make an appearance on, on an official release of his though. The same way that it is with dignity, which we'll get to, um, uh, I guess probably in the next episode. Um, you know, these kind of, um, not legendary songs necessarily, but these, these, um, well-known songs that he had written and recorded and performed live, but had never actually given a a proper release, even on a bootleg series, at least up until this point. Um, you know, this was like one of his like earliest songs, I think. And so that's why is what, that's why it is sort of not the most, uh, you know, uh, brilliant or cutting kind of anti-war track that you can imagine. It's because, like, he, you know, he's writing in 1962 or something. So yeah. it's just kind of cool to see him, it's still, you know, it's good. bring something from that initial literally unplugged period of his career and his um, performance um, uh, into this, you know. That's, uh, that's totally true. And, and I don't version. think I would even have uh, anything to say against it if this record happened to include other songs that I think should have been on there. Um, so I guess I just hold a little bit of a grudge against it being included in lieu of a couple others that I think if it came down to that, like I would have picked instead. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, and I see what you mean there. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess, uh, someone liked it. He liked it. The, uh, the, the big wigs liked it. 
Looks like he had kind of rescued this song or like brought it back. I'm looking at like the, how many times or, you know, all the instances that he's played it live, uh, played it uh, at the Gaslight on October 15th, 1962, then Town Hall, April uh, 12th, 1963, and then didn't, didn't play it again until July 87, uh, and then played it a bunch, you know, throughout the tours in the folk covers era, um, and then, you know, it has made numerous appearances since then, so... It's, you know, it's kind of cool. Like he's got this song from literally like over a cent, over half a century ago that he, he wrote and, you know, kind of just discarded and let sit, never put out on a record. And now it's, you know, it has a new life, uh, all these decades later. Yeah, sure. Um, the song itself, you know, whatever, I, you know, it's, it's good. It's, it's not going to change any lives, but, uh, just that concept is kind of, I, I don't know. It's cool. Yes. Um, what do we got next? Let's see. Rainy Day. Yeah. We have uh, Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35. 12 and 35. Number 12 and 35. Yeah. What, a, what a troll title that is. <laughs> um, you know, it's good. Uh, we all love this song. This doesn't hold a candle to the version on Before the Flood. Shock, yes, shocking that the energy level is is different uh, it, after like f- almost half a century, um, but it is, and this one's good. You know, it, it's it's good still, but I, yeah. I don't know how much more I can. I just can keep saying that it's pretty good and it's good, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think I feel similar about this one that you do about John Brown, uh, perhaps in, in that, like, you know, it, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not it, a radically different arrangement and not, that yeah, doesn't not a radically, really, and like, it it's almost kind of like a novelty song. Yeah. You know? It doesn't um, do much to justify its inclusion. Um, other than the fact that it says everybody must get stoned, which is kind of like, you know, obviously it's been misunderstood, like, largely, like, that it's about weed. I think that was probably something that it's sort of a double entendre, of course, but... Um, right. It's, uh, it feels a little like a cheap, a cheap laugh in this context when you're yeah, playing it I on mean, MTV. Yeah, it's, it's one of the songs on Blonde on Blonde that are just, like sort of like gag songs or bit songs and it's a great like fantastic song especially starting the entire fucking record off with this song that's the most brilliant part about it is the fact that this is the first thing you hear on Blonde on Blonde um but and you um, go from there to Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands yeah exactly what a journey um but uh yeah I mean if if this is what we're including on this record at the expense of some of these other tracks uh that we will uh get to um you know uh, next time you know that's that's more of a that's the issue more of an unconscionable decision I would say um but you know it's uh it is it is a classic uh, and everyone everyone likes to hear it they even like to hear it when we perform it just like we just did 
you know, we've gotten such rave reviews uh, from the Patreon listeners uh, uh, for all of your recent renditions of songs on the Bootleg Series 3 episode that we did recently. So I figure we can incorporate some more actual, you know, kind of singing and, and yeah. do doing in all of our episodes, you, which... Uh, the rave reviews, you, you mean like from my girlfriend and from you and me? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what everyone's here for, right? Is not to actually listen to us talk about Bob, but just hear us poorly. My uh, girlfriend recite. listened to the latest one and uh, said it was good. Did she? She did, and I didn't even tell her to. Wow, my girlfriend uh, did not, but she she does back us on Patreon, so that's all that counts. Patrons of the arts. <laughs> that's what GF stands for. <laughs> GF stands for GoFundMe. GoFundMe. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty good. What What is her favorite song on the bootleg series? No, no, you misunderstood me. She did not listen <laughs> yeah. to Bob Dylan's, and she Just. has not listened to much of his music, probably ever, but she listens to our podcast occasionally. Cool, cool. Well, that's all that, that counts. That, that's right. For us. Thank you to our girlfriends. Well, uh, because there is no side A, B on this one, yeah, uh, yeah. We'll just let's just roll, roll merrily along. Merrily along. And um, uh, we, we are going to get to, uh, right now, one of my favorites on here. Although with, there's a sort of asterisk next to it in my mind because there happens to be another version from the other show. They, this is the one they picked, but I kind of like the other one a little bit more for very vague and very personal reasons. But uh, it's Desolation Row. And frankly, I think even this one that I I don't like quite as much as the other uh, Knights version, it's still pretty clear, I think, to anyone listening who who knows what, what to listen for, that this is like a masterful and important reinterpretation of the song um it's fantastic to me i mean there are moments on this um where i really do think that dylan like is able to do the songs as good or if not if not better than their original 60s form Mm. like this feels exactly as valid and and rich to me as as him playing it acoustically in the sixties, right? Somehow, it's it is a very very strong version. I mean, it's a great song and it, almost like kind of. I, I, I'm, this is probably my own problem, but like I, I've almost kind of forgotten about it. Um, you know, Desolation uh, just, Row. Yeah, just with like with how much time and, and energy and effort we've spent focused on you know the, the latter day yeah. shit, um, it uh, you know there's just there's so many of these you know just absolute like kind of towering achievements from the '60s shit, uh, and it's easy to just sort of forget that that you know I mean like Sad Eyed Lady and uh, Baby Blue those are those are the two album ending songs that jump to mind first for me and then um, for for whatever reason and there's also Desolation Row which is equally as good as both you know it's mm. just there's so much there um, anyways yeah it's uh, it's a uh, it's a really nice version it's sort of 
again, like kind of quiet and uh, kind of spare. Um, again, not necessarily because it's acoustic, but like it is, you know, that, 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 that um, guitar strum, that signature kind of, like it's completely absent from this version. Mm-hmm. Um, that but Spanish it's still, guitar. Right. The refrain or, you know, whatever. But you still got know. actually kind of like a Spanish feeling. Yeah, this. definitely. God, what a fucking um, great song. I mean, uh, it it just it, it strikes me that listening to it uh, this time, and and listening to the other version of it that we get, um, this song feels kind of like an elegy for for like the the beat era or something. Hmm. Like I think it might be something like that um, in some way. The way that it, it, it seems to be about the end of the 50s to me. Hmm. It's not a fully formed idea or, or thought that I have, but listening to it this time, I was sort of wondering with the, I guess it just came to mind, Desolation. I was thinking of Desolation Angels, one of, one of Kerouac's books, and, and the use of all these literary figures and characters and history in this book. Or in this in this song that are kind of uh, all on this in this nightmare world that's like seems to be about to end or ends every night uh, that that's uh, just a, a, a thought I was playing with tonight and just speaks to of course that you can listen to this song this is one of those songs you can just listen to and kind of infinitely read into and find yes. something new to appreciate about every time you hear it. Every time. I think it's safe to say that I, I, there's, there's something sort of ironic about him playing this song in this context. I think it, it's safe to say that Desolation Row in New York City, uh, such as it ever existed, certainly did not exist in the 1995 version of New York City. Uh, where Bob was performing at the MTV studios in Times Square for this kind of thing. Well, I don't think Desolation um, Row is a real place. Ian. Well, I understand I that, a, but like it's a uh, place the, of the mind. It's a place, right? But the the place of the mind that uh, he was drawing from, you know, originally certainly no longer existed in New York City at this moment in time. How about I get real galaxy brain with you, Ian, and we hmm. we dis- we uh, propose that the the desolation row that he's speaking about here is sort of the end of history desolation row again, <laughs> sort of uh, a, a situation the sort of cultural landscape of the nineteen nineties coming to lift Bob's songs back up and in relevance <laughs> like. I, I I do think a case could be made that this song is kind of like about the collapse of a kind of imaginative world in on itself, and uh, you don't have it's not that big of a leap to to think about the end of history concept or the 1990s and the cultural world that it it spawned the one that we now live in. Right and, and this song, kind of um, all of these fictional characters and real life people sort of sloshed together, parading about in this weird nether region. 
just something to consider. <laughs> something to consider. Well, Desolation Row, you know, great song. Clearly, I um, could talk annoyingly about it for a long time. <laughs> well, we will, we will, we got to save some of our powder on this shit because we've got a whole suite of Patreon episodes. Yeah, no, we will have to talk shit. about it again. Uh, <laughs> but that's the great thing about Desolation Row. You know, I haven't even talked about any of the lyrics really in specifics. <laughs> so there's a lot more to take care of there. Uh, Desolation Row, the original series of dreams. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's up there. It's <laughs> it's up there with series. That's so funny. Excuse me, the original Oh Mercy, the song that that that's. Uh, I forgot that our uh, the folk, our, our listeners who don't subscribe to the Patreon right. were deprived of, of the, the knowledge earth, that the song series the of earth dreams shattering was originally revelation. to be titled Oh Mercy. Oh Mercy, let that blow your mind. Uh, I will just say that my. Uh, Favorite lyric, one of them, uh, from Desolation Row is Dr. Filth, he keeps his world inside of a leather cup. Mm. That's good. Incredible. <laughs> okay. I'm all, I've always been fond of the superhuman crew just because I've, I've tried to imagine well, what, what the superhuman crew. Well, if you've watched the film Watchmen by. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> as yeah. What Desolation Row has made Watchmen, famous by uh, My it, Chemical Romance. It ends Romance. with the MCR version of Desolation Row where those lyrics about the superhuman crew and the agents rounding up everyone. Actually, uh, it's, it does make yeah, your hair kind of uh, stand on end. That is an inspired uh, choice, honestly. And it makes your hair stand on end. I, I, I don't, don't. <laughs> it makes mine no. stand on end because I think like pretty good idea. And for you, it's standing on end because it's so cringe and you're right. You have goosebumps <laughs> of, of embarrassment for me. God, uh, I, no, it's a, it's a bad movie kind of, but, um, you know, he's one of the only, uh, auteurs we have. So you got to give him some credit. That is true. Yes. Uh, what do we got next? Dignity. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A song that I think is, I don't want to talk about too much, frankly. All I'll say about this song is that it's fully worthy to be on here. I like the message and I like what it says. Why don't you want to talk about it too much? It's because I don't really like the song that much, but I really Hmm. respect and appreciate it. I think it's great sentiment. Maybe if the melody and the way that it sounded was different, so if it was just a different song, <laughs> I like the lyrics. Yeah, I it, it's grown on me. I think uh, I remember. You know, I um, excuse I, me. I like the lyric uh, about the wise man. The wise man looking at a blade of grass. You know, I do really like. I like the song. Yeah, there's some nice, clever kind of lyrics. And it's, um, I don't know, it's it's just sort of like simple and, and easy to easy to grasp, but like effective still. I think it's like a, it's a more functional version of something like um, um, Political World or um, like uh, Disease of Conceit, for instance, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, Dignity was recorded uh, or written, you know, for the... Um, Oh mercy sessions, and, and I think it just, could, it actually should have probably appeared on that record. On yeah, I totally agree. I think that it's a, a really good song in terms of like, I don't know, it's a big idea, and who who better to make a song about it than 
than Bob Dylan. And it's not, um, I think importantly, it's not like a really, uh, soapboxy, like pompous sort of song called dignity. It's, it kind of is breezy in a, and actually kind of, um, light, but exactly, but it's, it's sort of just like a, uh, a montage of different people, different kinds of people, all these archetypes that he kind of flies before you. And, um, not unlike the, the sort of parade of different types of people you get in something like gotta serve somebody, um, Mm. where you just kind of get this bird's eye view of like all kinds of people, all kinds of people you can be. Right. And in this song, Wow, the more I talk about it, the more I, I kind of like it. Sounds like you're coming around on. Yeah, dignity. no, I back dignity. Wow. Okay. I think the I think the the breezy element is like really what makes it work because it, something like you know political world or or disease of conceit are are these also you know kind of simple basic concepts executed simply, but they're they're very self serious, um, and so they you know they kind of grate a little bit. But for this, you're totally right. It's just like kind of an easy kind of bopper. Um, and, uh, and he breezes through it and it's fun and you get the message and it's, you know, it's just, it's effective. It's simple. It's like a nice little package. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's a nice, uh, nice little melody. It's like do, a, do, it's do, like do. the peanuts do, 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 cartoon do, do, do. version of like a serious song, you know, it's yes. kind of got yeah, this, this is... sort of like light touch, but still hits on the real themes, the real, the right. Real this meat. is Bob Dylan as Charlie Brown as Charles Schultz, really. No. Did you know no. that Charles Schultz write? He wrote the Peanuts comic strip. Yes, for, I did know that. Do you know he 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 did it himself? <laughs> like nobody else took over for him. He did it himself. He wrote all of the strips, and he did it for fifty years. And he like wrote one every day, practically. Uh, yeah, I think I think I knew that. But have you like and let that it, sink like, in? Isn't that crazy? Well. I guess I'll let it sink in. The peanuts and, yeah, is and really then, like when he died, it ended. It it has not suffered really um, to an appreciable degree. I think mm. by overexposure. Um, I I did just see today. There's a new Snoopy uh, program on Apple TV, and I I don't know what that's like. So right, I'll have to investigate that. Um, but knowing how they handled the the peanuts movie that came out like a couple of years ago. Um, seems like they, they, uh, worked pretty closely with his, his son actually. And, uh, it was done with as much respect and, uh, restraint as as could be hoped for. Hmm. The Peanuts. Great cartoon. Great, uh. Check it out. Great. In the funny pages. (laughs) Check it out. (laughs) Well, uh, Woodstock is my favorite. Sorry. Uh, Woodstock is my favorite character of peanuts. Right. The bird. Yeah. Love him. Yeah. Well, do do you hear that? What could that sound be? Do do you hear that knocking? V, fi, fo, fum. (laughs) (laughs) I hear the, I, or I hear, I smell the blood of a Bob Dylan. You could say. Sure. It's knocking on Evan's door. My name. Knocking on Evan's door. That's well, that's what good. it sounds like he's saying. <laughs> knock, knock, knocking on Evan's door. Um. Yeah. Uh. It's it's a great song. You know, when I was listening, 
when I was listening to this, um, I was sort of thinking like, God, just like how cool it is to have put yourself in Bob Dylan's shoes for a minute, Ian. Just imagine that you've written this song, this very simple, like eternally effective, perfect song that's probably mm. pretty easy to sing. And you just get to sing it whenever you want. Yeah, it's his. This is like such a easy song to do, but he's the one who did it. And it's uh, perfect. Uh, so it happens to be a perfect song. It is. This is not the, uh, the the perfect version that would, of course, be the reggae version from yeah, the, no. the, the Budokan <laughs> Well, that's, the Budokan that's shows. perfect in terms of reggae versions of the song, for sure. Right. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's nice to you hear... You can't grill to this version of it. That's true. Exactly. No, that, that is, that is definitely, or this is definitely not the grill pilled version. No. Um... It's, it's, this one's a little more dramatic, you know, uh, it's, this, I think this version suffers a little bit from the, uh, all along the watchtower syndrome here and that it, it once again sounds really kind of blown out and heavy. Like it's, yeah. you know, it's a big moment, which makes sense cause it's fucking heaven's door. Um, but it, I don't know, it doesn't quite go over the edge for me where I listen to it and think like, God, this is kind of hammy, but it almost gets there. Yeah. Yeah, he's got Bob's definitely got a very kind of affected uh, vocal take on this one. I think um, at the same time, I like that he seems to be like giving a shit, and it sounds like yeah, give, yeah, he's into it. It's nice. It, it it does sound like he's making it dramatic, and that's that's good, right? Um, There's another nice harmonica break here in the middle too. I mean, to, we don't need to say much more about it, but for. For, for the next song, just because I just said to me myself, dramatic, like a dramatic reading. Hmm. I will say for the next song, which is none other than like a Rolling Stone. Hmm. Um, it has a really great uh, sense of drama in it. And especially one line reading. Um, Wait, I, this does or Heaven's this Door? This one, does? this next. I'm just moving along from Heaven's Door because I don't have much. I see. Okay, we're done. We're we've we've, we've closed the door Heaven's on Heaven. Well, we're sure. trying to get to Heaven before they close the door pretty soon. Oh, you know, I I somehow never made that connection. You know, actually, you did because on a previous episode, I pointed this out to you, and you said the same thing. Oh, okay. Well. <laughs> Shows how much attention I'm paying to this shit. Uh, Ian has a childlike sense of wonder that can't escape. Anyway, um, <laughs> what I was saying was the... Um, I don't know if you noticed this. It's kind of subtle, but uh, on this version of Like a Rolling Stone, when he says, uh, do you want to make a deal? That's mm. probably one of my favorite ways that he's ever saying that. It's just so like gut wrenching it's uh, he really seems to be embodying the character uh huh. it's like really pathetic the way that he sings it like do you want to make a, a deal it's so sad uh i really think that it adds a lot to this version so i don't know that i recall such a we can we can check it S- such out. Such a reading. Here. Let me hang on. Let me. I'll I'll 
I've got it going right now. Let's see. He's not selling any alibis. Staring to the vacuum of his eyes. You say, do you want to? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I have noticed that now. I see what you mean. Do you want to? Yeah, yeah. Make a, a deal. Make a deal. It's so, <laughs> it, you really get this sense of like this woman at the end of her rope. Right. Which is really what I want out of this song. You know, I want that like sure. Cassavetti's level, like just fucked up people desperation like just kind of begging each other for yeah it's it's uh it's great i i really love that so i think dylan really commands the drama of this this song at this point uh whenever he wants like he can make it more casual and sort of glaze over parts but there are moments when he he can lay it on and with like the the age it's like you know like the aged quality of his voice like a well-aged steak he can uh, really like add that that funk to it do you age a steak well you can you can have a great dry aged right, or wet aged, aged steak steak you've yeah. never had a, an aged burger or no. an aged uh, no, 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 no i guess uh, now that now that we mention it you ever, you ever I, I, I was just a, thinking about you ever been to Mineta tavern uh, I haven't been to Manhattan Tavern. Right by no. Cafe Hua, uh, where Bob Dylan once played. Right. I I would Street. like to go to Manetta Tavern. We should. Why don't we go to Manetta Tavern sometime? Well, why don't we uh, ever go out to dinner? That, well, that's that's <laughs> that's a good question. I don't <laughs> have a good answer. Why to don't that we? Question. We should go out to dinner soon. Yeah. All right. I'll uh, get a table for two at. Uh, they have a great dry aged burger. That's my point. Sure. Uh, actually, you know what? Maybe, maybe I have been to Mineta Tavern. It's right on the corner there. Yeah, I think I have been to Mineta Tavern. Yeah, actually. it's like by like IFC Center. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go. I'll make a reservation. We can we can just go sometime soon. Um. Perfect. Anyway, I really like this version. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's like Rolling Stone. It's very nice. You know, who doesn't love who doesn't love it? Uh, I think for me, uh, I, I I think Bob's vocals here are good. Uh, this one again, sort of like Tombstone Blues, and maybe that makes sense because Tombstone Blues obviously follows like a Rolling Stone immediately on the record. I see. Part of part of the strength or part of the power comes from the you know the just the absolute ass kicking whipsaw kind of sound of the uh the electric energy uh which is uh, this is an energetic take on it but it is still a you know a, uh, a mostly semi acoustic version so it's um you know not quite as as just kind of cracking as i want it to be but um i think i think it's it's good and and i yeah like i said the the bob vocal i think is great so you know at the end of the day Beggars can't be choosers. No. Beggar, that's what this song's about, actually. That's true. Exactly. If you could summarize it in, 
in a few mm. words, it would be beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> Good for you, Ian. That's what I'm here for. Uh, well, that brings us to the last track. And I think that we've actually, uh, not like a Rolling Stone is, you know, a great penultimate track. The last great, great last four tracks. I think it really comes in for like a smooth landing with dignity, mm-hmm. knocking on heaven's door, like a Rolling Stone, and then finally with God on our side. Indeed, with God on our side is just great. Um, listen to it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's very nice. This is another one that I've kind of forgotten about i think um in my uh, or in our in our journey through uh, all of these years and decades uh, especially because it's something that's so you know from so early in bob's career well it, it's an it's one of those songs that's from so early and yet feels almost like it came so late like it, it has right. such a old soul quality to it right um and as i said before when you put this one up against John Brown, like in terms of anti-war songs, this one's just got such like a galaxy brain, like, you know, for like a, a young man, like really like a, a big picture perspective that I think still suits Dylan at 60, whatever, or whatever he was, 58, nine, um, 53, 53. Uh, wow, he, he was only 53 here. Yep. He's 78 now. God. 25 years. Still with us. Um, anyway, yeah, uh, this song is like reading uh, People's History of the United States uh, three times. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, this is dedicated to Howard Zinn. Um, it's, it's a fantastic song and it's, it's great to hear him pull this one out just sort of randomly as well. Cause it isn't one of the most, um, famous songs, I think from the first couple records it's, it's up there, but it isn't, it isn't at the level of, um, you know, uh, hard rain or masters of war. Not, not in terms or, of fame perhaps, but in terms of actual gravity i i think it's absolutely sure, in that absolutely. in that class no i agree i, I think agree it, with you it's, there. there's an argument to be made that it's like a better song than masters of war um just because it's so i think it's politically like actually a little bit more daring I think it definitely has aged certainly stronger than something like masters of war. Um, because it, it doesn't have that very kind of, um, of the moment, um, you know, kind of sixties quote unquote radicalism and, and kind of anger that obviously dissipated and just ended up going. Well, absolutely it, nowhere. it does, it does still um, have that, but it, it's, it's really, I mean, I think that the fair thing I guess would be to say that it's equally as good as masters of war, but what I like about this song is that it, um, it has this kind of sardonic or like really knowing irony to it that Masters of War doesn't have. Masters of War gets along on just like pure will and 
and just pure hatred for mm. these people who are, you know, warmongers, which is totally uh, always A-OK by me and will always be true. And it, it really succeeds with that just sheer ferocity. But this song is a slightly more, I guess you could say, sophisticated just in, in terms of uh, this kind of overarching um, feeling of dramatic irony where, where he kind of plays dumb or is throughout the whole thing. And you're left right. with these sort of like gaping questions that he knows he's about to spring on you. Right. Yeah. I, I think it's a very mature and kind of, kind of like Voltaire, uh, the famous Voltaire quote about, about war war. What is it good for? It's forbidden to kill. Therefore all murderers are punished unless they kill in large numbers into the sound of trumpets. Hmm. It's a pretty good line. It is pretty good. Yeah. I, I love the line in this about uh, 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 about World War One. I. I think it's such a fantastic way to just kind of like completely shut that whole thing down. Uh, oh, the First World War, boys, it closed out its fate. The reason for fighting, I never got straight, but I learned to accept it, uh, accept it with pride, for you don't count the dead with, when God's on your side. Yeah. Like, uh, I... Never figured out why that was fought, but uh, and I just accepted. But it. he says the Spanish-American War had its day. The reason for fighting, I, could, I never could say. Is that right? Um, no, that was that was uh, I think First World War. He says Spanish-American, and well, he says Spanish-American, yeah. But that was uh, oh, the Spanish-American War had its day, and the Civil War too was soon laid away. Laid away. And the names yeah. of the heroes. Uh, is made to memorize with guns in their hands and God on their side. This this is a type of music that children, not children maybe, but young young people should hear. It's good to be radicalized a little bit by this music, um, by these lyrics. Yeah, you hear that, kids? You should be putting this on your TikToks and yeah. doing dances to this and pointing at different things on the screen about things that you dislike. Doing scantily clad dances. Maybe that should. Uh, maybe we should start getting some of that on the account and see if that boosts the uh, boosts the engagement, boosts the followers. With God on our side, it's one of the most uh, poignant anti-war songs that Dylan ever did. And um, join us next time to discuss uh, the the material that was cut from this potentially excellent record and definitely excellent performance. This has been Jokerman. All these people that you mention Yes, I know them, they're quite lame I have to rearrange their faces And give them all another name But now I can't be too good Don't tell me no more, let us know Come on.